We are in section 2 of the book of Ezra, which is Ezra chapter 7 through chapter 10. This is the second wave of returnees back to the land of Judah. So remember Zerubbabel led the first wave in 539. And about 80 years later, Ezra is going to lead a second wave back to Judah. In between the first wave and second wave, and that 80-year period, is the book of Esther, which we'll be covering after these two books. So this is the second wave. And remember, they were supposed to and required by God to return back to the land. Not returning to the land was a sin against God. God specifically made it clear over and over and over and over again in the First Testament that to be outside the covenant land is to be outside the promises of God, to be outside the blessings of God. Only in the land would they experience Yahweh. Only in the land would they experience the blessings. This is why exile was such a horrendous judgment. If one could experience blessings of God and life of God outside the land, then exile would have never been a punishment. Now that they're in exile, God made it very clear in Jeremiah that they were returned to the land. The fact that so few are returning to the land shows how comfortable they've become in exile. I mean, Jeremiah did tell them to marry and build houses and settle down for a while because it's going to be a whole entire generation, if not more, before they would come back. But he never intended like to sit down roots for like multi-generationals and never come back again. They've gotten fairly comfortable to the point that they're not really returning. And so Ezra is a second wave, and he feels the conviction to bring another group, and they will feel the conviction as well, and they'll return. At least they're returning here and there and there, but at the end of the three waves that are covered in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, hardly still only a fraction are going to return. And, and that's a problem for what it means to be the people of God in the land. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after these things had happened during the reign of King Xerxes I of Persia, Ezra came up from Babylon. Ezra was the son of Sariah, who was the son of Azariah, who was the son of Hilkiah, who was the son of Shalom, who was the son of Zadok, who was the son of Hatab, who was the son of Amari, who was the son of Azari, who was the son of Mariath, who was the son of Zariah, who was the son of Uzai, and who was the son of Bukai, and who was the son of Abshua, who was the son of Phineas, who was the son of Eleazar, who was the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra is the one who came up from Babylon. He was a scribe who was skilled in the law of Moses, which was Yahweh God of Israel had given. The king supplied him with everything he requested, for the hand of Yahweh his God was on him. In the seventh year of the king Xerxes I, Ezra brought up to Jerusalem some of the Israelites and some of the priests and the Levites and attendants and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. He entered Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the first month, he had determined to make the ascent from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he arrived at Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. And now Ezra had dedicated himself to the study of the law of Yahweh, its observance, and to teaching its statutes and judgments in Israel. So Ezra feels convicted. He's in Babylon, and he goes up to Jerusalem. Now, technically, Jerusalem is going down. But when it comes to Jerusalem, as where the temple is located, it's always up. 
You're always going up to Jerusalem no matter what direction you're coming from when the temple is there because you're going towards God and you're going up towards his sacred mountain, so to speak. Ezra returns. He brings a group of people. Now, unlike the first chapter, we don't get a long list of numbers of the people to return, so we're not exactly completely sure how many there were. But notice it says that God had moved Artaxerxes I to support Ezra's return. And Ezra returns. He returns for the sole purpose of teaching the law. It says that he was a scribe and gave, dedicated himself to the study of the law and the observance of his teaching statues and that he was going to teach this. So Ezra goes back and from the context and what's coming later in the next chapters, we know that Ezra's going to spend pretty much all of his time teaching the law. Now he's a descendant of Aaron. He's in direct line of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel ever. So that makes him a priest as well, along with Joshua. Now Joshua is now dead. In the first return, Ezra becomes the new priest. That means he is a holy priest of God who knows the law and needs to be teaching the law to the people and drawing the people to God. And he feels very much convicted to do that. And overall, he will successfully do that in his time. Year is 458 BC, and it's about 80 years later, and this is a 900 mile journey that they just made. Verse 11. What follows is a copy of the letter that King Xerxes, Art Xerxes, gave to Ezra, the priestly scribe. Ezra was a scribe in matters pertaining to the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes over Israel. Art Xerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, a scribe of the perfect law of God of heaven. I have now issued a decree that anyone in my kingdom from the people of Israel, even the priests and the Levites, who wishes to do so, may go up with you to Jerusalem. You are authorized by the king and his seven advisors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, according to the law of your God, which is in your possession, and to bring silver and gold with the king and his advisors have freely contributed to the God of Israel, who resides in Jerusalem along with all the silver and gold that you may collect throughout all the provinces of Babylon and the contributions of the people and the priests of the temple of their God, which is in Jerusalem. With this money, you should be sure to purchase bulls, rams, and lambs, along with the appropriate meal offering and libations, which is a drink offering. You should bring them to the altar of the temple of your God, which is in Jerusalem. You may do whatever seems appropriate to your to you and your colleagues with the rest of the silver and the gold in keeping with the will of your God. Deliver to God in Jerusalem the vessels that are given to you for the service of the temple of your God. The rest of the needs of the temple of your God that you may have to supply you may do from the royal treasury. I, King Artaxerxes, hereby issue orders to all the treasures of the trans-Euphrates that you that you precisely execute all that Ezra, the priestly scribe of the law of God of heaven, may request of you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and unlimited salt. Everything that God of heaven has required should be precisely done for the temple of God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the empire of the king of his sons? Furthermore, be aware of the fact that you have no authority to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, the Levites, the musicians, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or the attendants of the temple in this God. 
Now you, Ezra, in keeping with the wisdom of God, which you possess, appoint judges and court officials who can aberrate the cases on behalf of all the people who are in the trans-Euphrates, who know the laws of your God. Those who do not know this law should be taught. And everyone who does not observe both the law of your God and the law of the king will be completely liable to the appropriate penalty, whatever it is, death or banishment or confiscation of property or detainment in prison. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who so moved to heart and honor of the temple. Artaxerxes writes a letter to put in Ezra's hand with a seal that basically gives him free passage through the entire empire, that 900-mile journey, all the way back to Judah. So verses 1 through 10 talk about the fact that Ezra came back to Jerusalem. The verses 11 through 26 is the letter that Ezra carried with him, giving him free passage. So not only did God move Artaxerxes, the Persian emperor, to give him authority to return back, it also moved him to give him authority to protect him. He came with all this money, all these contributions, and had permission to basically exact a contribution from the people in the Trans-Euphrates. Now remember the Trans-Euphrates is everybody south of the Euphrates River that's in the Persian Empire control. And so Ezra was given all this money, and then he was allowed to go door to door to door collecting money for the temple and that kind of stuff. And all the Persian officials that live in the Trans-Euphrates region were required to support this money collection so that he would have this money in order to pay for bulls and rams and all kinds of other things. Now, you know that they collected tons of money because not only does it tell you what they came with, but they had to collect even more because animals aren't exactly cheap. And you had to make several sacrifices in the morning and several sacrifices in the evening every single day. And this is going to support that for at least a certain amount of time. So this was a lot of money that he was able to raise because God moved them. Once again, we see the Exodus theme. That just like Moses brought Israel out of Egypt with all this money that they collected from the Egyptians to go back and build the tabernacle, we saw Zerubbabel do the same thing in his first wave, and now we're seeing the same thing happening again. God is definitely backing the return. The other thing that the emperor gives him permission is basically to teach the law. Now remember, the emperor does not worship Yahweh exclusively. But he basically says that Ezra has become an expert. He's dedicated himself to the law. And he's backing Ezra's right to teach the law of God. Here's a God that he doesn't necessarily worship. A, a law that he doesn't necessarily adhere to. Because if you read the Esther story, he doesn't adhere to any of the laws of God. He's a drunken despot. And, who, and he's willing to just kill the Jews at the whim. Yet, he's saying, I'm backing Ezra to teach the law to the people of all of Euphrates region and to support him. And nobody's allowed to go against his teachings of the law in any kind of a way. And the third thing that he allows for is that all the priests and Levites and all the people working in the temple are completely exempt from any taxes. Nobody's allowed to tax them in any kind of a way. This is 100% support of this return. And seems to be detailed even more than Cyrus II. We know that Cyrus II largely supported the first wave, but it wasn't quite detailed out like this. Notice the reasons he gives so that the wrath of Yahweh may not come against his empire. Now remember, Cyrus II 
basically allowed everybody of every land to return with all their gods, idols, and all that kind of stuff to their temples. And he basically asked them to pray on his behalf to those gods. One of the reasons that he allowed this to happen, even though he didn't necessarily worship all the gods, is because he didn't want any of the gods to be against him. He wanted the blessing of all the gods throughout his entire empire. Remember, if your empire goes from all the way from the Mediterranean, where Greece is, all the way to the India, India, Indus River in India, and then from the Caspian Black Sea down into the Gulf of Aqaba or um, Saudi Arabia, you, you can't watch all that. You can't control that extremely successful. You can have advisors down there and officials, but we all know that they can turn against you too, especially when there's hundreds of miles of distance. So you desperately want the backing of these gods. And so this is basically a campaign of, I'll scratch your back gods, you scratch mine. Of course, that's how worship of the pagan gods has always been for everybody. Nobody likes the gods. And the gods made it clear that they don't like you. It's basically, we will sacrifice to you so you won't destroy our crops and our children. And you won't destroy our crops and children so there will still be people who will make sacrifices to you. It's this symbiotic relationship that's not really healthy in any kind of a way. And this is what motivates them. And because he wants the backing of the gods, including Yahweh, he exacts a severe penalty. Anybody who disobeys the teachings of Ezra is allowed to be punished according to the law of God. Given permission that any punishment that Yahweh requires in the Mosaic law has the backing of the emperor to be enforced. And that's huge. That's huge for an emperor to say that I'm allowing a second law to be implemented and taught in my empire and its punishments to be executed as well, even though it may not always go in alignment with my law and my punishments. How that would actually work out precisely if there were contradictory laws, don't really know, but the implication is they have the backing. Verse 27, Then Ezra says, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who so moved the heart of the king to so honor the temple of Yahweh, which is in Jerusalem. He has also conferred his favor on me before the king, his advisors, and all the influential leaders of the king. I gained strength as the hand of Yahweh my God was on me, and I gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. So he begins to gather leaders to help him make this journey back and help lead Israel when he gets back there. He says, blesses Yahweh. He acknowledges this. This is huge. We truly have to believe that God can move our country and move our leaders, or we're doomed. We've talked about this before. We are in a chaotic state. We are, our future in this country is more unknown than it ever has been in, in our lifetimes. And our leaders are just all over the place right now. And we, personally, I don't know who to believe anymore. I don't know what is the right answer. And I found that basically I'm just praying for God's wisdom. Ultimately, my wisdom is I don't have answers how to fix the problems in America. I don't know exactly who's the right leader. I don't trust our leaders' wisdoms in a lot of way. And so I found myself praying more and more for the wisdom of God than ever before, not praying that my person would get elected or that my ideas would happen, just surrendering and saying, God, you need to do this. You need to do something in our country. And if God can take our Xerxes the first, this 
horribly corrupt man, way more corrupt than many of our leaders in America, and turn his heart to back the people of God and to support a secondary law, then how much more can he do that with our leaders that are not as absolute power and they're not as a despot and their law of America is largely based on the biblical law to move their hearts and guide them in our country if we truly pray. I think this is a powerful testimony of prayer in this book that we need to be praying more for God's will to be done with our leaders than exactly for what we want to happen, the elections to be happening. Maybe in the past it became clear who should be the leader in everybody's eyes, but I think it's more clear than ever before. We need to be praying for the one that God wants, not necessarily the one that we want. And we need to pray that God works outside the box to move our country forward in revival and in health and the promotion of the gospel than any idea that we could possibly come up for. Our wisdom fails. If anything I've learned going through this book multiple, multiple times, no matter how great we think our wisdom is, it's not really that great. Not that God hasn't blessed us with wisdom, and not that he hasn't blessed us with the ability to give good counsel to people at different times, but not completely devoid of the spirit and prayer and depending upon him. And that's so important. That is so important to understand and accept this. And Ezra does. He sees God in all of this. Chapter 8, verse 1. These are the leaders and those enrolled with them by the genealogies who were coming up with me from Babylon during the reign of King Xerxes. List all these rulers and leaders in verses 1 through 14. All these Jews were mainly relatives of the Jews who returned in the first 80 years ago under Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel, with the exception of Joab's family. So most likely what convicted and inspired this return was that they had relatives in Israel already, and they were largely being successful. And so they, their relatives have gone out, they, they're successful, they're thriving, and so they've said, I want to join my family, and I'm going to be successful as well because they have. Now remember, the first wave that returns, they're truly the brave ones, really risking going to the unknown, not knowing anything that they're going to face. The second wave is mostly like, hey, I've got family. I know it'll be okay ultimately. Because it is hard to leave your family. It's incredibly hard to pick up, leave one part of the country, and go to another part of the country and leave your family. But you're not risking a whole lot when you're going to join other family. And I'm not saying you're not risking anything at all, but the risk becomes greatly reduced when there are people there. And so these are the leaders. Verse 15. I had them assembled at the canal that flows toward Ahava, and we camped there for three days. I observed that the people and the priests were present, but I found no Levites there. So I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, and Shemaiah, Elianoth, and Jerob, Elianoth, and Elianoth, and Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were the leaders, and Joab and Elianoth, who were the teachers. I sent them to Ido, who was the leader in the place called Caspia, and I told them what to say to Ido and his relatives, who were the temple servants in Caspia, so that they would bring us attendance for the temple of our God. 
Due to the fact that the good hand of our God was on us, they brought a skilled man from the descendants of Malai, the son of Levi, the son of Israel. This man was Sherebiah, who was accompanied by his sons and brothers, eighteen men, and Hashbiah, along with Jeshiah, from the descendants of Merai, with his brothers and their sons, twenty men, and some of the temple servants that David and his officials had established for the work of the Levites, two hundred and twenty of them. They were all distinguished by name or designated by name. Ezra sits out and he realizes, wow, I don't actually have any Levites. This is really important. I'm the only Levite going back to teach them. Now, there are some Levites that are already there, but he wouldn't know exactly how many and what position they have. So he needs help teaching the law. So he seeks out his men to go and recruit more Levites. And they basically gained 38 Levites and 220 temple servants to help out with the temple. Most scholars estimate there were about 4,000 people total, including women and children, that returned, even though unlike the first wave, there's not an exact number that is given. 8.21 I called for the fast there by Ahava Canal so that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from him a safe journey for us our children, and all of our property. I was embarrassed to request soldiers and horsemen from the king to protect us from the enemy along the way because we had said to the king, the good hand of our God is on everyone who is seeking him, but his great anger is against everyone who forsakes him. So we fasted and prayed to our God about this, and he answered us. Ezra basically went to the king and said, God is with us, and he's against everybody who is against us. So that when he made that comment, he became afraid, embarrassed, to ask for a military escort. Because if he asked for a military escort, then he feared that that would admit publicly that he didn't believe that God could actually take care of him. And so instead, he decided to fast and pray for God's protection. Because think about it. These are not our men. They're Levites and family members. And they're making a 900-mile journey back and they are fully loaded with lots of money. And they are wealthy themselves. They're a prime candidate for robbers. And yes, he has a letter from the king saying that the king has supported them. But a lot of times raiders don't like bind you up and read your letters first before they massacre and steal you. And so this wouldn't allow him much protection from the initial, unless a reputation began to spread through the land of who he was. And therefore they became afraid to attack him. So he prayed, and he fasted, and he makes it clear that God had actually answered his prayer. And that's clear because he makes it back down to Judah uneventfully, with no hinders or obstacles in any kind of way. Verse 24, Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, together with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and the ten of the brothers. And I weighed out to them the silver or gold and the vessels intended for the temple of God, Items that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all of Israel were present had contributed. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver vessels worth 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 gold bowls worth 1,000 darkas, and two exquisite vessels of gleaming bronze as valuable as gold. Then I said to them, You are holy to Yahweh, just as the vessels of our holy. The silver and the gold are a voluntary offering to Yahweh and the God of your father. fathers. Be careful with them and protect them until you 
you weigh them out before the leader, leading priests and the Levites and the family leading leaders of Israel and Jerusalem in the storerooms of the temple of Yahweh. So he gives them all this silver and gold and that kind of stuff. The Babylonian talent weighed about 66 pounds, and the Dirica weighed about 4.5 ounces. In total, this is about 28 tons. That's um, on average about 28 cars. That's how much weight they're carrying. A car is about two ton, or about yeah, about a ton or two tons, depending on what car you have. So this could be anywhere between um, 14 to 28 cars that they're carrying with them, just of gold, silver, and bronze. This is like a raider's dream. And then he gives it to the priest. And he says, "Guard it with your life. Don't let anything bad happen to it." Then the priests, verse 30, and the Levites took charge of the silver and the gold and the vessels that had been weighed out to transport them to Jerusalem to the temple of your, our God. Now, there basically is two weighing stations to make sure they don't steal anything. They've weighed everything and they give it to the priest and he says, when we get there, we're going to weigh it all out again. It's like counting the money in the cash register at the beginning and at the end of the night and it better equal what it should. On the twelfth day of the first month, we began traveling from Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from our enemy, from bandits along the way. So we came to Jerusalem, and we stayed there for three days. On the fourth day, we weighed out the silver and the gold and the vessels in the house of our God and the care of Merimoth, son of Uriah, the priest of Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, who, was accomp- who we were accompanied by Jazabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Benu, who were Levites. Everything was verified by number and by weight, and the total weight was written down at that time. So nobody stole anything. The exiles were returning from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to God of Israel, 12 bulls for all of Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, along with 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to Yahweh. Then they presented the decree of the king to the king's satraps and to the governors of the trans-Euphrates who gave people to the, help to the people and to the temple of God. That's a lot of animals to sacrifice in one night. This shows you well. Remember, sacrifice is supposed to hurt you. It's not much of a sacrifice if you're like a millionaire and you throw a quarter into the offering plate. That's not a sacrifice because sacrifice without sacrifice is not a sacrifice. And so if they're sacrificing this many animals, that says to you that they're extremely wealthy. Therefore, they have to sacrifice this amount of animals for it to actually financially hurt them to be a true sacrifice. Remember, the whole point of a tithe is you're supposed to be tithing the amount of money that you think, I don't think I will be able to pay the bills this month if I tithe this much money. Because then that's when God really goes to work and blesses you. Not that's why you tithe, but that's the way you use thanks offering. And not that you have to go that extreme, but the idea is that this is a sacrificial offering to God each month as I tithe. And this is what they offer. And God protected them. And nothing bad happened to them. And they presented the decree to the officials of the trans-Euphrates, showing that they have the king's backing. This is a long, detailed-out journey. The first wave, we were given more precise numbers of all the people returned, but very little information of how that return actually happened. Now we're getting less, fewer numbers 
of how many people returned, but way more details of how God took care of them. Ezra, remember, is a scribe. He loves keeping records, and he loves detailed documents. And so this is what he's detailing out as God taking care of them. Now we're in Judah, and they're going to mingle with the people that are already there from the first wave and begin to settle down. 